Uh, let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. A reading from 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. God, we come to you this morning and we pray that you would send your spirit to tend to your word, that it might reach our hearts and that you would help us to see and uh, glory in the beauty of Jesus and the life that we have in him. We ask this in his name. Amen. Uh, I have a video on my phone that I think many of you would be interested in seeing because this video involves one of your pastors. And this video is from a few years ago, but I kept it for a moment like this. And I actually thought about showing it to you this morning, but that's not really been our mojo. So come, come up to me afterwards and ask me to show it to you. I think you'll enjoy it. But I, need, but I need to give you a warning. This video is a little shocking. It may even disturb some of you. Because in this video, your pastor, Iron Kim sings and dances to the song, Who Let the Dogs Out? You know how it goes? Who let the dogs out? There we go. We got it. You're going to see Iron shake his head side to side, singing and dancing to this tune. There's only one problem with this video. It's a complete fake. A friend of mine showed me this app a few years ago where you can take a picture of someone's face and then you pick a song and it creates an unbelievably realistic version of that person singing and dancing to that song. It's incredible. But by the way, I have subsequently deleted that app from my phone and that's a whole different story. But the thing is this, if you really know Iron Kim you know it's a fake in about two seconds because Iron would never sing and dance on video to Who Let the Dogs Out, no matter how much you pay him. And this is why I'm talking about this. The easiest way to spot a fake is just to be incredibly familiar with the real thing. In fact, the U.S. Department of of the Treasury has a counterfeit division. Uh, Its job is to identify counterfeit currency And the thing is, there's no way they could possibly keep up with all the variations of counterfeit that are out there. They just, they come so fast and they show up in so many different places. So you know what they do? They get really familiar with real currency so they can easily spot the counterfeits. Now, this morning, we're starting a series called Real Christianity because it is easy to fall for counterfeits if you don't know the real thing. And what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks into the fall and really up to Advent is we're going to spend our time in a book of the New Testament called 1 John. And I want to talk for just a few minutes on why we're picking this book. 
and why we're connecting it with this topic, real Christianity. And, he, and here's the first reason uh, that I thought about. John, the author of 1 John, was one of Jesus' best friends. It's arguable that no one knew Jesus in his earthly ministry better than John. Right? He was part of the inner three, Peter, James, and John, you can read about in the Gospels. Right? It's, it's that John that is writing this letter. He was with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus' divine glory was unveiled momentarily. He was with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus sweat drops of blood and cried out, May this cup pass from me, Father, if there's any other way. He was at the crucifixion, saw Jesus crucified, killed, dead, buried. He saw Jesus after his resurrection. And he was so transformed by this experience that he actually bore witness to Jesus all throughout the Roman Empire. And in fact, he was even exiled to the Isle of Patmos by the emperor Domitian. All of this for his loyalty to Jesus. Who better to represent you than one of your best friends? John is writing this letter to a church, a network of churches most likely, in Asia Minor that had been disturbed by departures from that community. And those departures were due to false teaching that was entering in. People falling for fakes and counterfeits. And we can tell this because when you read the letter, you you hear things like this. Chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us because they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. And then a little later in verse 26, he said, I'm trying to persuade you against those who are trying to lead you astray. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And what this means is, is that there were people in this community who seemed very spiritual, were very knowledgeable, but John said, are very dangerous, because they're trafficking in counterfeits, in fakes. They're using the name of Jesus to represent something that Jesus doesn't represent. So John is not dealing with the weight of persecution that comes from outside the church. That was a problem uh, in the history of the early church, and some of our New Testament letters are written to address that, like 1 Peter. John is actually concerned with seduction that's coming from inside the church. And this is really, really important. These individuals and people who were leading astray, they didn't think they were destroying Christianity. They thought they were improving it. They were editing, they were updating, they were making it more congenial to the cultural moment. Now, I'm not going to get into a lot of this this morning because we have a whole sermon series to get at, but uh, many scholars think that this was the beginnings of a movement called Gnosticism. Um, It wasn't full-blown yet until the second century, It's a very varied movement. There's debate over what exactly was entailed. But at the very least, we know a couple of things. One is that Gnosticism, coming from the Greek word gnosis, knowledge, was about having secret knowledge or insight into the divine, right? It kind of gave you a leg up, like pushed you to the top into the spiritual elite. It was very individualistic in its orientation, okay? Really about me and my spiritual connection, 
And uh, there were a number of gurus in that whole movement, which were like the ancient influencers, right, who are constantly doling out the tricks of the trade. And this is really, really important. It offered salvation through self-discovery, finding the divine within. And it was beginning to mess up and confuse and disturb this network of churches in Asia Minor. By the way, um, I hope it comes as an encouragement to you, strange as it is to say, that our cultural moment of seeking to update and improve Christianity is nothing new. The church has always faced that. You can see it in every era of history. There is nothing new under the sun. But I think it's also worth saying that there are good reasons and bad reasons that people are upset with the church and with Christianity right now. Some of the good reasons are the abuse and the awful things that people owning the name of Jesus Christ have done. And we should take that with utter seriousness. But there are also really bad reasons. People trying to update and improve and edit the Christian faith so it's more acceptable or more congenial, right, to the, to the cultural winds. And here's the thing. You're going to see John dealing with both of those when you read his whole letter. And he's going to actually give some tests about how to distinguish true and false that involve not only what we believe, but how we behave. John is writing to a church or a network of churches that is being disturbed. And so it's relevant in any and every age when there are seductions that are coming from within. And here's the third reason why I think 1 John is really important right now. John writes with startling clarity and contrast. He, he lays it out in this really crisp way, light and darkness, hatred and love, truth and falsehood. As you get kind of to the end of his letter, you hear him just say things like this, whoever has the Son has life, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And these are the kind of things that are said in order to bring clarity in a context of confusion. And by the way, they're things that old men and old women say. <laughs> you know, like some of you, I hang out with you and I, you're older than me, okay, so, so don't be offended, but um, I love how crisp and clear Things have gotten for you. And how you don't have to always be nuancing or guarding your flank. You can just say it. It's very refreshing. And John, near the end of his life, probably in his 80s, is writing this letter in order to bring clarity in the context of confusion. He's writing to his flock in order to protect and guard them from counterfeits. And the best way to do that is to make real clear what the real stuff is. But here's the last reason, okay? John writes with a pastor's heart. You're going to see again and again him use tender words when he talks uh, to his people. He'll say, my little children. Now, here, here's, here's a good indication you know you're getting old is you start referring to people as kids who aren't kids, you know, like, you're both, boy, that's a really nice uh, kid that works at Coffee Bar, and they're 42 years old, okay? So John, as an old man, is writing to this congregation that is full of people of a variety of ages, but he says, my dear little children, it's his pastoral tender heart. And he's going to have some hard things to say to us, but we must never forget 
the pastor's heart that's behind it. So that's why we're getting into 1 John. Those four reasons. And what we're looking at this morning, verses 1 through 4 of chapter, of chapter 1, are the prologue to the letter. It's very rich. It's very dense. We have spent a whole series on this. I'm going to try to keep this crisp, but I'm not that old yet, right? But this, this prologue bears remarkable similarities to the prologue to the Gospel of John. The language is so similar. Right? This was the consistent, faithful witness right, of the Apostle John to the beauty and glory of Jesus. And here what he's doing is he's kind of pouring some theological footings right, to establish the foundation on which he will build out the rest of his letter. And I want to focus on one thing this morning as we get into this letter, holding back so much. And that one thing is John's proclamation that Jesus is the life. I want you to notice this. That there's a lot of words in these first four verses. It might be a little hard to follow, but the main verb is John saying that he testifies and proclaims to us the eternal life. Life. That's a great word, isn't it? Right? It's what everyone wants. I want to live a full life. I want to live a meaningful life. And we're always looking for how to like improve our life or live our best life now. There's lots of advice everywhere about how to do that. There's books written about it. There's TED Talks. There's podcasts you can listen to. There's YouTube channels that are devoted to it. We're consumed with life. We know there's something essential for us here. John has a message about this. He calls it the word of life in verse 1. And it's not impersonal. It's not a set of rules and instructions. It's not a bunch of bundle of guidelines. It's not just a philosophy for you to live by. It's deeply personal because it's a person. And he says, that which was from the beginning. What is the that? It's the life that was from the beginning. The beginning of what? The beginning of everything. Same way the, the, the prologue to the Gospel of John begins. In the beginning was. This life that was from the beginning was from the beginning, verse 2, with the Father. In communion with the Father. Face to face with the Father is the idea of the Greek. This life was made manifest, John says. We saw it. We heard it. We touched it. And this life was and is and always will be Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's verse 3. This is what John is saying. Jesus is the life. He is the source of it. He is the fullness of it. Apart from Him, there is death. So the word of life that John is writing about here is the gospel of Jesus Christ. His person and his work, who he is and what he came to do. This message that John is proclaiming proclaims that the eternal entered into history, was heard, was seen, was touched, lived and died and rose again, and there are witnesses. In other places in the New Testament, you find the gospel summarized as the word of the kingdom, Matthew 13, uh, or the word of salvation. 
Acts 13, when Paul is preaching, or the word of, Second Corinth, of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians 5. Here, John says, it's the word of life. The gospel announces and offers life in Christ to you and to me. But I want you to notice something. John isn't claiming some mystical experience of this. Because Christianity is not first and foremost about a private, individual, religious experience that you might have or that I might have. It's a claim about historic, verifiable, public truth. John uses words that signal he is giving a witness deposition. And he stands in line with a whole host of other witnesses. For example, the apostles. That's the apostolic we in these first four verses. So he's not talking about a private mystical experience that he's had of some person named Jesus, right? Though he had a vision, he's talking about seeing with his own eyes, he says, touching with his own hands. And this is all important for us if we're not going to be taken in by fakes and counterfeits. The Christian claim is grounded in history. That God entered into it in the person of His Son. And you know why that's so important? Because we too often find ourselves settling for substitutes of these kind of claims. What do I mean by that? Well, we say things like, I'm a person of faith. We feel pretty good about that. But faith in what? Faith itself is nothing. It's about the object in which it is placed. And John is saying our faith is in the revelation of God in the person of His Son. Our faith is in one who came to rescue, whom we saw and heard and touched. Or how about this one? We like to say things like, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And that'll get closer to some of the things that John is getting after in this letter. But did you know that spirituality is not enough? God doesn't say... I want you to be a spiritual person. He says, I want you to reckon with the real Jesus because he is the life and that life was manifested for you and for your salvation. You know, one of of the most powerful delegitimizing objections to Christianity is, is not an argument against the historical veracity of the New Testament or the early claims of the early Christians that he rose from the dead, it's actually just a move that is made that relegates Christianity into the realm of personal taste. You know what I mean by that? Where you say, that's your truth. I'm glad that works for you. I need to live my truth. But John won't let us settle for that. Because the Christian claim is fundamentally a public, verifiable, historic claim. That the Son of God entered into history. That the Word, as he says in John chapter 1, put on flesh. Do you know what the New Testament is? The New Testament is the apostolic witness to the true significance of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And there, there's all sorts of ways we can talk about that, but you know, one that's, 
that's interesting is this. You know, in Jesus' ministry, he was constantly appealing to the Old Testament Scriptures, saying, it is written, it is written, it is written. After he is raised from the dead, he commissions his apostles to go out and proclaim the good news of who he is. And as those apostles engage in their public ministry and begin to die off, do you know what they do? They start saying, I'm writing to you, I'm writing to you, I'm writing to you. Written, put down, so that we can have a ballast for our faith. An apostolic witness to the significance of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we're not to depart from that. It's not to be updated and edited and improved. It's a body of truth that we receive. You know, this, this is important because our tendency is to want to edit and update and improve Christianity. And one of the ways that, um, that I hear this in, in conversations that I have and uh, in just stuff that I've read is people say, look, we're all spiritually evolving. And you know, that, that's kind of an attractive metaphor in some sense because we want to make progress. Right? We want to grow. We want to change. And that feels very... Like, yeah, yeah, we want to spiritually evolve. But how do you know if you're spiritually evolving? You ever ask that question? Because you can't know if you're making progress unless you know if you're headed in the right direction. You might be devolving. (laughs) How do you tell the difference? And here's how you tell the difference. The New Testament lays the foundation and sets the direction of all spiritual progress. And the foundation is Jesus who is the life and is sharing that life with us. And our life begins to be shaped and conformed to his life. And we need the apostolic witness to understand that. Let me put it another way. We need the scriptures to edit our understanding of Jesus instead of using our understanding to update and edit him. Otherwise, we turn Jesus into a mascot for our ideologies. And that happens all the time in the church and outside the church. John is testifying to the one who is eternal life, who put on flesh, who lived and died and rose again. They saw him, they heard him, they touched him. And they go out and bear witness to all the world. And we received that. Now, John's, there's a purpose and an aim to what John is doing here. And it's not to make us smarty pants or feel all arrogant about the truth. It's actually to usher us into, and this is the second thing I want to talk about, fellowship. You notice that John says, we proclaim this to you so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. Fellowship with the Father and the Son, and with each other in this community called the church. They, they actually go together. I could say one is built on the other. Our fellowship together is built on the fellowship we have with the Father and the Son, and then they become mutually enriching. Now, when we say a word like fellowship, even if you didn't grow up in the church or this is the first time ever in the church, you probably still think coffee and donuts Right? I mean, that's, that's what we have out here. We got fellowship hour, I think is what Iron calls it. To, you know, and it's like you go out here and it's like, that's just the setting. It's just the setting of the table. Do you know what fellowship is? It's intimacy and bonding and communion and sharing of life. And what John is saying is, 
I want you to have that with us as we've borne witness to Jesus so that we can all share in fellowship with the Father and the Son. And he will add Holy Spirit. He's limited to Father and Son because that's what a lot of the, the, the tricksters were, were, were going after. But John wants what the Apostles' Creed calls the communion of the saints. If you're new to Christianity, the Apostles' Creed is one of those short, early, and most long-lasting creeds uh, that come in the history of the church that survived the test of time and language and culture. As people from, you know, 6th century wherever and 17th century wherever read, it, read the Bible and go, you know what, this is a pretty good summary. <laughs> it's a pretty good summary. You know what one of the things it says? I believe in the communion of the saints. The sharing of fellowship. And yet this is, this is really important because when you think about it, in, in a room like this, we have a whole lot of differences. Some of them are very obvious, some of them aren't, right? Some of us grew up with a, with a different cultural background than the person sitting next to us. Some of us have tons of money, others of us are like, I'm running out. <laughs> right? Some of us, we have huge bags of shame that we carry with us into this room. Some of us had a great life for the most part. We don't know what all the fuss is about. Okay? We could go on and on and on. Some of us are Enneagram 1s. Some of us are Enneagram 7s. Some of us are Myers-Briggs this, Myers-Briggs that. I don't know the Myers-Briggs well. But you know, we could go on and on about our, our differences. But in the communion of the saints, it is fellowship with the Father and the Son that counts most. And you will experience this, that you can meet someone who has had a life entirely different than yours, but has come to faith in Jesus and has fellowship with the Father and the Son. And there's a bond. There's a connection. There's an intimacy. And it's meant to spill out in a type of life together. John's going to spend a good deal of time teasing out what that should look, at, look like. And we'll, we'll get to that. But I want to add a third thing this morning. Jesus is the life is John's proclamation, and his aim is the fellowship, the communion of the saints. But you know what his goal is? The fruit he hopes to see? It's joy. John says in verse 4, we write these things so that our joy may be complete. You You know what joy he's talking about? He's not talking about the joy of good circumstances in your life. We know how unstable that is. He's talking about a subterranean joy that flows underneath your life that steadies you and sustains you in those seasons of drought that actually helps you flourish when you feel like life is disorienting and chaotic. What is this joy? It is the joy of knowing the love of God in Christ for you. In, in verse 10 of chapter 4, John writes this. Listen to these words. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. John wants his little flock to not only know in their heads that they have every reason to believe this, he wants them to experience in their hearts the love of God for them personally. And he says, because this is what brings joy to completion. Joy we have as individuals, joy we have together as a community, as people who are rooted in the apostolic witness to Jesus 
who is the life. John ends his letter with some very crisp, contrasting words. He says, this is the testimony. Here's my witness deposition. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You may know it. John is bearing witness to the real Jesus. He doesn't want anyone to be taken in by counterfeits or fakes. He doesn't want us drifting away from Jesus, from the fellowship of other believers who are rooted in the apostolic witness. And you know why that's really important? Because there are countless Jesuses out there. Do you remember the Depeche Mode song from 1989? Your own personal Jesus? (laughs) Do you remember that? You don't. Some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Go look it up, you know? Johnny Cash remade it. Johnny Cash's version is much better. But, uh, but Depeche Mode wrote a song about your own personal Jesus. And everybody at first thought, oh, this is about the commercialization of religion. Um, but the, the, the front man for Depeche Mode was interviewed in 1990. He said, no, this is about our tendency to try to be Jesus for someone or have someone be Jesus for us. Because we all know fundamentally we need a Savior. And there are countless Jesuses out there, but there is only one who can save. Only one who put on flesh, who suffered and died as a sacrifice for sins, who rose for our justification and is coming again to bring new creation. And that's why John, his final words in this letter, Jesus is the true God and eternal life. Little children. My dear children, keep yourself from idols. And that might sound like a weird way to end, but you know what he's saying? Don't fall for counterfeits. Don't go for the substitutes. And I've written this letter that you might be so familiar with the real thing that you're not going to be taken in. John's an old man. This is his heart poured out for these communities, these churches in Asian Minor. You know, there's something about growing older that just brings what's most important into focus, doesn't it? I'm I'm 48 years old. I don't think I'm an old man yet, but like I'm getting there. Some of you are like, you're not even close. And others, you're like, 48? I see all the great. But as I've gotten older, I've found my life shifting a bit. That there are things that I thought were so important that just aren't important anymore. There are things that used to, I get worked up about and they just don't work me up anymore. Because growing older, you begin to focus in on what matters most. And one of the places that this came out, I realized, was when people would ask me, how can I be praying for you? And for years, I would just be like, oh, pray that I don't bomb this, you know, first, first sermon, first John, you know, and people will be upset or bored. Uh, pray that, you know, about this thing going on in life, or I've got to do this thing, or, you know, whatever. And you know what I found myself saying every time now? So if you want to know how you can pray for me, I'm giving you the answer right now. Pray that my children will love Jesus because they know how much Jesus loves them. Old age starts to bring some clarity to life, doesn't it? Starts to bring some focus. And here's John, the last of the apostles, outlived everybody else. They've all been martyred for the faith. 
And he's aging in his years. And he's writing, my little children, never forget that Jesus is the life. And don't be taken in by any fakes or substitutes. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word. We pray that it would do its work in our hearts and that it would anchor us in the love that you have for us in Christ. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bear witness uh, in our hearts, Lord, of the love that you have for us that has been demonstrated in the cross, that is offered to us in, in and through the resurrection, that is life the life we need. Lord, would you do that work in our hearts, whether that's for the first time ever or for the millionth time we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.